But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel 1 verse 8 Welcome everyone, you are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Today we're going to talk about the book of Daniel. Zelwyn, how are you? Doing great, Willie. We're in the middle of a cold spell, if you can believe that. I think the weather thing said that it felt like 37 below this morning. So 37 below. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, I'm i probably a full like 100 degrees opposite of you or something. Yeah. But like, how, how is the sod uh, keeping you warm through all that? <laughs> Uh, well, you just kind of huddle all together and sit next to the stove and you'll be fine. So, <laughs> Well, we are in the 60s here today and it's raining very, very heavily. So a bit of standing water on the way up uh, to the compound today. Um, and so that's always, that's always fun. But otherwise, pretty warm. I mean, it's just going to get warmer. Warm and rainy. Very I mean, humid the other day. Swampy, if you will. I mean, you literally are 100 degrees warmer than I am right now, but this is true. neither here nor there. Right. But that's true probably uh, personally, too, right? (laughs) My cold heart. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, Zelwyn is actually the warmest of all of us. A lot of people don't realize that. He's he's very approachable. Just uh, make sure he sees you and don't make any sudden movements, though, if you do see him. We would ask that if you see him in the wild, please do not feed him, however. (laughs) <laughs> then I might become too attached. Or he something. might become too attached. He'll become <laughs> he'll become too dependent, and we'll have to we'll have to put him down. It's it's sad. It happened <laughs> once before. <laughs> we don't talk about that. We time, don't talk so. about it. No. Well, so um, as the world uh, begins to grow, perhaps crazier, and uh, as we hear the copes from everybody, oh, don't worry about it. The world has always been crazy. The people who tell you that don't want you to look at the signs. As as we begin to see things out in the world, we thought it would be good to take a look at the book of the prophet Daniel. Daniel is a is a book that um, contains a lot of wisdom for us. Daniel is a man who lived in strange times and in difficult times. And uh, Daniel is also a book, Zelwyn, would you say, that straddles a couple of genres? Yeah, especially because the first half of the book which, I mean, we're going to start at chapter one and just kind of work forward. But the first half of the book is more or less a, a history. I mean, it's it's very difficult to call it anything else because it talks about Daniel and what's happening to him and the things that he's going through. And so you have that more straightforward historical account. But then once you get to about chapter seven, you have the transition into apocalyptic literature, into the prophecies of Daniel, which, of course, is probably the part that everybody wants to get to. But I think both parts of the book together, even though they straddle different genres, do come away with more or less the same message of, you know, this being confident, even in the face of uncertainty and remaining true to God, even when it's very difficult to do so. So there is a unity to the book of Daniel, even if it straddles two genres, like you said. Right. Oh, 100 percent. In the first half of the book, uh, very really offers some very practical advice uh, when in the face of tyranny and oppression, those who would want you to betray your God and to worship those apart from the Lord your God, how how should you live? 
how to not be tempted away uh, by the things of the world or temporal pleasures. And so we're going to talk about that. I'm trying not to unpack everything too early simply because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bury the lead or anything like that. End the episode in the first five minutes. Right. But there's just so much, so much good here. I mean, we're going to learn that, you know, sometimes you do have to say no. Sometimes you do have to push the plate away, as it were. There is a time where you need to put the drink down and say no. Right. And so we're going to talk about that. I mean, imagine um, imagine having your religion so persecuted that they're going to change your name. That someone's going to take the Christian name from you. What would you do? You know? Yeah. How how would you how would you react to that? And I love reading the Old Testament. I mean the New Testament too, but some of that I'll say gets done away with, whether that's it should have historically or not is another question. But everything is covered up by God in the Old Testament. You know, he it extends to how they conduct business, how they live their daily lives, what they eat. You know, here is the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like. And every society understood that. So that when Babylon conquers the Hebrews or conquers uh, Israel, then they want everything subsumed under Baal, right? Right, and, right. And I think that that's something that we can learn. I, I actually do really rather strongly agree, and I know that some people strongly disagree with me, that it is better to Christianize society. I do appreciate the idea that everything would be Christianized. I do like blue laws. <laughs> well, now that you've said something like that, this has been a word fitly spoken. This has been a word so. fitly spoken, yeah. I do like a Christian-influenced economy because I like a humane economy. Things like that. I, th- I think your point is well made, though, because when we have the Babylonians, for example, even changing the names of their captives into something Babylonian, it shows that all-consuming aspect of what it means to be you know, under God, or in this case, under a false God. And it's not like we don't see that kind of thing happening today. It's just a lot more subtle. And maybe that's yeah. something we need to talk about as we go forward. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more because I don't want to get entirely, you know, because what people are going to say is, well, if you try to build a society like this, it'll fail because they always failed. So there's no point in doing it or they'll bring some enlightenment rules up or whatever. But look, if the people in your area are Christian, that's naturally going to be reflected in the community. Right. So we don't, we don't have to talk about legislation here. It's just a natural, a natural outgrowth of being a, a Christian community. Yeah. Being a Christian will mean something for the way that you live. It's not just this generic, oh, well, I guess I have these Christian beliefs on top of whoever else I am as an individual. If I be, if I am Christian, if I am Christianized, that is going to change things. About yeah, a me. lot of times we'll be like, "Well, I'm an American first. I'm a Harry Potter fan second, and I'm a Christian third, right, <laughs> or something like that." And you know, insert whatever you want in that middle tier or top tier, but Christian becomes just one of the many things there, right? And and sometimes is 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 pushed down. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about what a Christian society will look like. Well. And I think it'd be worth talking about what um, what the Old Testament society looked like. We often have this idea that it's all blood and guts and violence and tyranny, and it's not. We sort of filter that through the lens of the Pharisees, I think. Sure. It, it, because the word Pharisee has a negative connotation, especially nowadays. But 
I think if we unpack that, we're going to see a, hey, say what you want. At least it's a society free from human sacrifice, <laughs> you know, and other things. So that's kind of what we're talking about, Daniel. It's 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 uh, the kingdom of heaven versus Babylon. And Babylon has fallen. I think that's just going to come up every episode now. Right. I mean, besides our music, it's just going to be a an ongoing right. meme. It is our jam. <laughs> Well, where do you want to start then, Willie? I think we should get into the book itself. Well, I reckon we should just uh, begin right here at the first verse. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Which puts it towards the end of the southern kingdom, of course. Although, right. and, and as we see here, you know, the Lord, verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So yep. we have the collapse then of Jerusalem, and that's kind of the the initial. Yeah. And let's set and, and let's set the stage. The temple is standing here. This is the holiest place on earth for people who believe in the God of the Scriptures. Right. That because of their disobedience, they're being they've been handed over to such a degree that even the holy vessels of the temple were raided. And taken, and I, it's really hard for us to fathom something like that as American Christians. I suppose maybe a Roman Catholic could understand it if Vatican City was besieged. Sure, but it wouldn't have the same impact for us as Missouri Synod Lutherans if St. Louis, the International Center, was you know taken over. I mean, yeah, it would have an impact, but I don't think it would be you know dragging office chairs out or the or the statue of walter probably wouldn't have quite the same impact as <laughs> the lampstands being taken well and especially because and this is something that i've talked about in my bible study here quite a bit that when you have the old testament god is still very much a local kind of presence he has yeah. not yet made the promise that He's going to be everywhere or that we are his temple or something like that. So that's that's very much a New Testament thing. So for the temple to be destroyed and for the vessels of God to be taken away, effectively to an Old Testament person would mean that God has left them. Right. And that's why I think it's so difficult for us to understand because it's not just, oh, we lost all the nice things. They've lost God in their minds. And we would say that there is a particular local presence of God. Right. You know, God is particularly present in certain places in a different way than he's present kind of generically everywhere. The altar, for example. Right. We would say he's present in a particular way, a special way, if I can use that word. But at the same time, it's not quite as intense as in the Holy of Holies. Right. Or, or or the tabernacle, depending on what, what year it is. So, and th I mean, that's why it's so significant at the death of Jesus that the temple veil is rent in twain, right? Right. Yeah, it's it's very hard for us to fathom that. Uh, we we don't have a temple. At we least are like, the temple. We are the temple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but that's getting into New Testament Right, stuff. but we do have altars, we do have sanctuaries, but again, it's not the same. Right. Anybody can enter into one of our sanctuaries, and nine times out of ten, they won't be struck dead. I think I, I like how you qualify it. Then most gotta, of the time, well, you got to hedge your bet. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, and I think it's also interesting. Like in verse two, 
when it says that Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the vessels of the house of the God, and it goes on to say, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Yeah, he makes a, he makes a, an offering to his God from the treasures of the temple of the true God. Yeah, exactly. But the reason why he does that, and the reason I think this is so interesting, is because this is basically, my God is better than your God kind of a thing. Your yeah. God has now become a servant to my God, and he's giving a tribute. And so for Nebuchadnezzar to do this, he's not only saying that, you know, you're defeated, you belong to me now. He's basically saying, your God is now nothing. You know, he is subservient to my God. My God's better than yours. My God can beat up your God. Kind of you got to love it. I mean, <laughs> hey, our boy St. Boniface will do similar, but for the cause of Christ, centuries later. Exactly. <laughs> But I mean, think about what that means, too, because you have this pagan, and maybe this is something where we can talk about our own time today, too, who's basically saying that your God is nothing. You know, you, you can't do anything about it. I'm superior to you. You just have to give in. This is now the way it is and so forth. I mean, yes. do we not see that same mentality going on today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the spirit of the age, right? Uh, except right. now, instead of bowing to Bell or whatever, we're going to have to bow to a series of precepts <laughs> or even presuppositions. And <laughs> and that's what we must bow to. Right. That's kind of what, you know, now that we are, you know, post, you know, we'll say Roman law, once everything be- comes to be codified and then the codified written law becomes the chief, I think since those days... Now you're going to be bound to a, a series of written things, sure. And even if it's not written nowadays, we're we're made to bow to at least an attitude, a spirit, and that's kind of the 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 evolution from that. Bow to this ideology. Now there's still the same yeah. spirit, and I mean that literally behind that, but at the same time, it's 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 packaged differently. Yeah, it's not like we did a whole episode on that or anything, but right. <laughs> But I mean, but the point is well made because when we look at the spirit of our age, however you want to name it, yeah, you do have this sense of, okay, you must submit to this way of thinking. You can't question this. You can't go against this. Even your scriptures, even the Bible, even God have to submit themselves to these kinds of things that you can't go against the prevailing orthodoxy, if you want to use that language. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be like one of us. And to go against that is to be increasingly rejected from society. In fact, I think we're seeing it now violently rejected from society. Yeah. Right. At the very least, forcefully. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess that would be violent. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're seeing that. And, you know, anyone who is, who is, trying to maintain a Christian worldview and especially a Christian life, a, a true Christian, you know, trying to live that out is met with stronger resistance than they in this country than they have been in a long time. And what passes for Christian orthodoxy is swiftly evolving to where I, I think you'll see in just a few years that a denial of God creating the male and female, and at, you know, a denial of what marriage is, and so on and so forth. That is rapidly becoming orthodoxy, even for some Christians. Sure. 
so that to deny that, or excuse me, to affirm the biblical position then becomes uh, the verboten position and somehow anti-Christian. Unthinkable even. Unthinkable. Yeah. yeah how could you say something like that? And it's going to, it'll come quick if it's not already there. And that's why as an aside, we need to be very, very careful in speech policing brother Christians. And anytime they would say something that society is, has deemed uncouth or perhaps a bit old fashioned, even conservative confessionals will jump on that person and, and quickly attack them instead of sheltering them, putting the best construction on this and trying to protect them. They will, even conservatives, and I, I don't like to use that word, but they will, they will join the mob and because that is, is the popular thing to do. And that to me is very scary. That to me is very, uh, not scary. I'm not scared. It's very troubling. Very troubling to see our own brothers, people who are on our own side, eating their own quickly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because of historical or political viewpoints that 50 years ago would have been perfectly in line with what the church teaches. Well, and I think I think what you're saying is true because this way of attacking ideas, this way of jumping on people because of the way things are worded, it's how our enemies think. It's how our enemies act. And to yeah. act in this way is basically to borrow Satan's tools. Yeah, and our discourse has become so toxic on all sides yeah. that there's there's virtually no communication. And we can't sit down and simply talk with one another as children of God and have a conversation that might be fruitful. And it, it doesn't help when people on opposite sides are, are at each other's throats, and it really doesn't help when people on the same sides of the track are willing to throw each other under the bus right. or willing to not honor their father and mother, as it were, as far as the people who came before them and the teachers and things like that. That's what the devil wants. The devil wants us to be all divided. The devil wants us to not have any empathy, to not have any even sympathy for everyone. And so he, he loves to keep us, you know, churned up. I mean, do you think it's an accident that Paul talks about, you know, one of the fruits of the spirit being unity, the bond right. of peace, you know, this sort of thing? I mean, from the very beginning, the, the devil delights in division. And so for us to seek it. Yeah. I understand contending, even forcefully contending for what is true. And I fully recognize that my tone, oftentimes, even on this podcast, is far from irenic. I totally understand that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, sitting down face to face with people, talking with them, can bear a lot more fruit than demonizing each other on social media. And maybe, maybe the way to really emphasize it is: let's not be underhanded with one another. Yes, let us be. Let us be fair with one another. Let us. Yeah, because yeah. I think because I think that's what we see the most often, right? Is that people who should be brothers, who should be supporting each other, resort to sniping, resort to underhanded tactics, and they say that they yes. think that they're doing it in the service of the truth. We shouldn't do that. We no. should be supporting one another, especially in these days when we are struggling right. against. Evil. And in and in times of correction or doctrinal disputes or moral disputes, we should always approach that from a perspective of love. Uh, we are we are seeking to bring someone into the truth out of love and concern. And yes, there are times where words will not be pleasant. I understand that, but it seems like we're really quick to turn to that. Sure. And, you know, hey, 
like I said, we're quick with the sword as well. And sometimes you got to be, but, but my goodness, let's just uh, treat each other as brothers in Christ. And see what we can do with it. A novel thought. Really. Yeah. Not, not throw our own people under the bus, but Hey, but with that, we're at our first break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this. back everyone you are listening to a word fitly spoken i'm willie grills here with zell and heidi and we're talking about the book of the prophet daniel well we had a good introduction there you know what is actually happening here um, in the broad sense well now let's start to dig into the text a little bit more zell and where are we going well let's just take the next major section of the first chapter which would be verses three through seven so we'll just take this a little bit at a time uh, verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his, king, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So what we have going on here, Willie, and maybe we can break this down a little bit, is the king taking the the best and the brightest of Israel and educating them in such a way that they forget their father's house, right? I mean, that's really his goal, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you know, thankfully we've never seen a repeat of that throughout history ever again. (laughs) Yeah, you're taking, uh, you know, your, your best young stock and converting them over to your side, which means that for generations you're going to have you're going to win them over right they're not going to go after the old men so much they're not going to go after the weak they're going to they're going to go after the best and try to convert them and try to woo them by any means necessary which is a smart plan i mean everybody recognizes if you don't have the youth you don't have a future right right but i mean isn't it telling that when we have in our day and age all of the crap that we see happening and all the stuff that is... Oh, yeah, yeah. I if mean, I wasn't being clear on that point, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I just want to make sure that we're doubly clear. I mean, there's a reason why they have, you know, trans hour at the local library to read to your kids. There's yeah, they, a reason why all of these things are happening. Right. They, they rightly recognize that if they can pluck them up they, at a young age, they have them. I mean, apart from the Lord working, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it is also is also implying that 
If you do it from the opposite perspective, the same will happen. If you train them up in the way they should not go, if you train them up in alternate uh, worldviews, they won't depart from that. Right. And people will say, well, isn't that brainwashing? Isn't that indoctrination? To which we would say, well, I hope it's indoctrination. If it's not, I don't know what else it is. It's just a question of what into what you are indoctrinating them, right? Yeah, if you if you don't indoctrinate your children, the world will. Yeah, I mean, and it's simple and, as that. And I've never I've never understood this. Well, I'm going to let my children pick their religion. Like, well, there's a point in their life where I suppose yes, you'll it'll have to be that way. But you don't do this politically. You don't do this with sports teams. And people will say, well, yeah, but that's just a sports team or that's just a political party. Well, you, t- you you say that to me, and yet I see how much money you spend on both of those in a year or how much time you devote to studying those things or to calling out those things. Right. You tell me that religion is more important than your ball team, but tell me how much more time you spend on on the sports team or political articles or insert anything you want there versus your religion. And I'll tell you what your religion is. I mean, it, it really is as simple as that. I mean, what you spend your time with is what matters to you. Yes. And it always, but it's, but religion is always cast in such negative terms. I would love, and maybe we should do some episodes like this. We should do some interviews of some people who converted and are just happy or who were raised in the faith and are just happy because all we get bombarded with are deconversion stories. And I understand people who are who are mistreated and why they might turn away. But a lot of it really isn't that. It's just they became enamored with what the world offered. And in order to break away cleanly, they have to demonize the church. But I would really like to see some more just positive, like, you know, the church actually did wonderful things for me. I was hungry and they clothed me. I was weighed down with the burden of sin and they and they used the loosing key and my sins are forgiven. You know, really positive things. Like this is why we want our children to be a part of it because we understand what's at stake. I mean, didn't you just preach this sermon Sunday, Willie, about the the parable of the four soils? Correct. The the cares and the concerns of the world, the thorns right. and thistles of life. Right. And I and I am continually amazed and distraught by those who think that they are going to enter the kingdom when they completely have failed to nurture the vine to nurture the plant. At this point, the Lutheran will go, well, we don't nurture it. Nonsense, we do. We do. We nurture it by attending to the Word, by receiving the sacraments, through prayer. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit working. Obligatory disclaimer there. But we we treat the parable, like Jesus gives the explanation of the parable of the soils, and it's describing the sower sowing seed and the type of soil it falls in. But you can't use that parable as an excuse to say, well, nothing you can do. I must just be rocky soil. Would you say that as a pastor to someone? If they came to you and said, listen, I'm spiritually dry and I'm losing my faith. Would you go, must just be rocky. Sucks to be you. Nothing we can do. See in hell, sinner. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I would hope that we would try to till up the soil or something. Fertilize it. Do something. We want to stretch. I mean, that's that's one of the the parables where Jesus tells you what it means. Let's please not use it as an excuse to be derelict in duty or something like that. But we have to nurture the faith, and the faith, frankly, needs to be insulated. I think you do need to insulate young children from a lot of things. Young children should not be exposed to everything the world has to offer. 
and not every worldview. There's going to come a time where we, we have to train them to interact with people of different viewpoints and of different religions and how to handle that and how to answer objections and how to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered for all the saints. But you don't expose your children to harmful things early on. And we and we can let's let's take this out of a purely religious context. Everybody knows that if your child has a cold and you, and you want to give them cold medicine, you don't throw in a you don't throw Nyquil at them, right? Or an adult sized dose of Tylenol or something like that. Well, it's the same way. I mean, you're you're teaching a child the faith, and how are you teaching it? You're teaching the big Bible stories. You're teaching it in a simple way. You're teaching them the Lord's Prayer, right? You're teaching them the the the, the elementary things of the faith. And and so you do, you're not showing your child violent images. You're not letting them watch R-rated stuff. And if you are, quit it. If you're showing a five-year-old, you know, risque and R-rated media, you need to stop it <laughs> because you're no better than the guy at the story hour at the library wearing a or, wig. Or the guy taking his kid to pride march or something like that yeah i mean you know regardless you know however you feel on on that issue why would you bring your kid to something like that with with the stuff that goes on there i don't understand it wherever you fall on the side of it and this might be a rhetorical question the way i'm asking it you know (laughs) right right you know why would you do that so yes we, we we train up children the way they should go and if we won't do it somebody else will and the same people that are claiming that we indoctrinate children want to have children to indoctrinate themselves. But they just wouldn't call it that. But again, I want to frame this kind of in positive terms. I just wish we could have some more, hey, the church, like very, very positive. Here's what the church did. <laughs> you're, you're just trying to be super upbeat today, Willie. It's I'm okay. just very chipper. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> it's the English side of me coming out today, I guess. And I guess I'm just being the, the dour... Scandinavian, as I well, you know, we've had we've had the last several episodes on cursed lands and territorial spirits, and you know, the church and the age of Spainer and what is going on. I mean, maybe maybe it's okay to be a little cheery. I don't know, just to be a little chipper. I mean, maybe I'm in a good mood because uh, the Postum Web Store is opening back up in a week, so I can finally get my (laughs) fix. I don't know, a lot of good things happening in the world. (laughs) No, it's it's all good, but. I mean, I and maybe to, to get back to the, the text of Daniel here, I mean, the, the point being that the king wants these youths to be taken away from their home to, and to forget their, their fathers, to forget their religion, so that he can draw the whole nation after him as well. Yeah, he knows that if he gets the, the young, skillful, wise youth, youths, youths, if he can get them. Two youths, Your Honor. <laughs> That, that the nation will follow. Now, isn't that interesting? Well, let's let's take the, the next little portion here, and right. we'll talk about that. So starting at verse 5, uh, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at, at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So, what, I think the, the the part that probably sticks out here, you know, different from what we just read, of course, is the king's food. 
what is this food, Willie? I mean, what what is he trying to do by giving them food and wine in this way? Well, it's not right to call it a bribe so much as it is an enticement. Okay. It is rich foods. If you come and follow me, this is what you will share in. See that what I can give you. I can give you the pleasures of the world. I can give you earthly stuff that satisfies for a time. And also, too, when you're talking about the king's food, there's another twist in this, and that it's probably unclean. So not only is he giving them rich foods and that sort of thing, but he's also giving them ritually unclean foods, right? according to Levitical law. So it's twofold. One, he's enticing them with temporal pleasure, and in, and two, in doing so, he is making them repudiate the law of God. So it's twofold. It's a, it's an enticement, but also a stumbling block for them. Well, thank God we don't have that problem anymore. Willie, no, so. no, we we could never be tempted by what we eat or drink, because <laughs> Peter saw a vision, and that means you can do whatever you want. I think Peter might have something to say about that. Yeah, I, that's my favorite thing. It's like uh, we want we want to make that vision about food, and the scripture is very clear that it's not. I mean, imagine like being the Gentiles, you know, hey, the Gentiles can finally hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. It's really about eating ham. Why would you read the book of Acts, you know, verbatim, though? Granted, later, the dietary laws are made clear. It's made clear that they've been abrogated. I'm not saying that's a sin to eat ham, but don't use the vision for that. It's not really the point. Right, right. Uh, well, I mean, but... But what we have here with the enticement of the king's food, I do think we see happening again in our day and age, but not just with food. Go ahead. Right? Go on. I mean, take, for example, entertainment. Mm-hmm. That, you know, this idea that we can be perpetually entertained and watch all of these things, you know, we just have to go this way kind of a thing. Or, you know, the the even like the government promising us things that, you know, we'll take care of you. We'll give you all the things that you need. All you need to do is X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. you know, or, or as unfortunately we see happening in Canada right now, you know, we will seize your assets and make it impossible for you to, to, yeah. to work. Right. So, I mean, it is this enticement of this is what I can give you. All these things I will give to you if you will but bow down and worship me, said somebody in the Bible. Right. And oftentimes it's it's under the guise of comfort. Yeah. Life will be easier if you will just do this. Or wouldn't you like just be one of us? Go ahead, partake of it. You don't want to be you don't want to be seen as a prude. You don't want to be seen as a pietist. You don't want to be seen <laughs> as a puritan. Oh, you're not one of those kinds of Christians, are you? And that's usually how it works. Like it's so funny. Our our willingness to go to excess is often wrapped up in a feigned uh, attempt to show how, I don't know, Christian we are. You know, to, to, to say that, well, I drink to excess to show you how free I am in Christ is the strangest thing to me. I eat a bunch to show how free I am in Christ. Right. Like everybody's Zwingli eating sausages during Lent now. And even Zwingli wouldn't have eaten them in excess, though. In excess, right. We've taken... Yeah, the Bible forbids gluttony. It actually does not forbid eating meat on Fridays. And we forget that. Like you're you know, that that there actually are restrictions on behavior, even for New Testament Christians. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm not a Campbellite. I don't believe that the law is is done away with. Fulfilled in Christ, all that obligatory, but that's not that's not a license for sin, as right. the Bible makes very clear. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Well, I mean, especially as you pointed out, you know, we often indulge in these things out of this strange desire that we might not appear as X. You know, so we won't be a fundamentalist. So we won't be a pietist. So we won't be perceived as a Baptist or something like that. It's always done with this. I'm, this is how great I am. And I'm going to show you how great I am by indulging in sin. Right. And we're not even encouraging here total abstention from things. We're just encouraging moderation and a bit of prudence. Right. Right. So, I mean, and maybe, and maybe the, the point being made here that we don't have to define ourselves by what we're not, or especially, let me, let me put it this way, especially by how the world thinks of us. Yeah. That's really the key here. Right. We want the respect. We want the, the admiration of the world. We want the acceptance of the world. And that's why we engage in these things. And we should not do that. Right. I mean, and basically the easiest way to do that is to eat the king's food. Right. And that's kind of what we do when we do these things. You know, Christianity needs to get weird again. I understand that. But not only liturgically. Yes, liturgically, our our style of worship does separate us from the world, heaven and earth, all of that, everything going on in the service. But also what is unique about Christians are kindness, love, compassion, moderation, temperance, prudence. Against such things, there is no law. Said someone. Granted, I tacked a few onto that verse, but... Easily, extrapol- <laughs> easily extrapolated from there. That, yeah, if you are using your Christian freedom to lord it over to someone, to say, look at the privilege I have, I, I don't believe you when you say you're doing that to show the gospel to them. You're just doing it to do it. You're doing it to taunt them. If abstaining from alcohol is, is a way that you can, you know, witness to an alcoholic or something, I don't know what the thing was, then... For that meal, maybe you push the beer keg aside. <laughs> I like how it's a whole keg. It's a whole keg. On. If abstaining from meat sacrificed to idols means you don't trouble the conscience of your brother, then you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's very simple. Paul does not say eat meat sacrificed to idols so that you may show the gospel to the one with the troubled conscience. It's the other way around. Right. And we forget right. that principle. Um, because we are so really self-centered with it. And I hate to keep going back to alcohol because that's kind of a bad... That's a difficult one to use because a lot of denominations will say wholesale, any consumption of alcohol is sin, and it's not. But that's kind of the closest correlation we can have to meat sacrifice to idols. So that's, you know, it's kind of why we go back to that illustration. Sure. Eating meat eating a meat, eating meat sacrifice to idols, just in that sense, is not sin. Dr- imbibing alcohol is not sin. But they can become sin in certain circumstances. Which is why maybe it'd be worth pointing out here too. The king's food in and of itself is not sin. You know, I mean, maybe there is the uncleanness there, you know, for Israel, but I mean, just to eat good food and to drink wine is not a, is not a sin in itself. Right. It's something, can, and, it, and it is something that we can enjoy. Right. In Christian freedom there. All right. Now go, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> but my, my, my point being that the problem comes in because of what's attached to it. And that's yes. where the that's the that's yeah. why Daniel cannot. What what is what is what is signified by doing this? 
Well, I mean, like we've been saying, the the acceptance of the world that you'll be one of us, that you are leaving behind your father's house, that you're living a life of comfort, you know, all these things I'm going to give to you. You know, I will become as your God is basically right. what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Right. And these boys know that, as right. we're going to see. So we'll be right back with more Daniel after this here on A Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking the book of Daniel, particularly the first chapter. Well, if you're still with us, we're going to talk more about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, particularly Daniel's faithfulness, though. So, Zellwin, take it away. Okay, so the rest of this chapter, chapter one, is really talking about how Daniel responds to what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. So let's just take a little bit of it, and we'll, we're will we probably not going to read all of this section, but we'll just kind of get the idea. But I want to at least have the first verse. Uh, verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So, Willie, why, why does Daniel do this? Why does he not want to defile himself? He simply doesn't want to defile himself because to do so would be uh, to show that He's disloyal to God. Uh, to, t- to eat of the food is tantamount to idolatry. To eat of the food is a denial of the law of God. To eat of the food is to betray God. Right. It's, it's going to show him as in league with the Babylonian gods and not with the Lord God of Israel. To basically give in to his new name, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, that he is, and, and that is a thing that we might miss. To, to take away that name the Hebrew name, and to replace it with a Babylonian name is a sin in and of itself. It's a sign of fealty. One that, yeah, one that he doesn't give into, right? I mean, this name is imposed upon him as a way of maybe trying to get him to be more loyal, but yet he still does not want to defile himself. He doesn't want to give in. He doesn't want to go this way. He wants to remain faithful in the face of all these difficulties. Yeah, and you could kind of argue that Changing their names is meant to humiliate them or to humble them. Sure. And then offering the food then as a way to, in their weakness, try to get their loyalty. So you've, sure. you've tore them down and now you're trying to win them back over to you, like training a dog or something. For the record, <laughs> I have no idea how to train dogs. That's probably not how you do it. But <laughs> but I know you can train with food. So. Pavlov's dogs or something. Right. But I mean, yeah, and so and so Daniel seeks a way to remain faithful in the midst of these troubles. Okay, yeah. and and just to just to summarize the next little segment, I'm not going to read all of it. He basically says to the chief of the eunuchs, 
give give me a test. Let me be given these vegetables to eat, water to drink, this different set of food. Test us for 10 days, and then we'll see how we look at the end of those 10 days. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. He doesn't just take the plate, throw it away, and just, you know, damn the uh, <laughs> the chief of the eunuchs. He actually asks, he requests him, he says, listen, let me let me do as my conscience dictates. Let me let me show you um, what will happen here. It's actually a right. request, which is interesting. He doesn't fly off the handle or anything, but also it's going to end up being a powerful demonstration of what obedience to the Lord can can accomplish. Right, and it's maybe it's worth noting here too that Daniel's obedience here is not just a passive aggressive. Oh, I yeah. guess it's just the way it is. He does something, right? right? He is active. Yeah. Don't let me defile myself. I fear the Lord. I fear my Lord, the King, who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than you use her in your own age? So that's the that's what the eunuch says. So Daniel says, please, don't, me, you know, don't let me do this. And the eunuch's going to go, look, dude, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> it's going to be very bad for me if you don't do this. And so then Daniel's going to go, all right, but... Let me make it easier. Let me show you what's going to happen. Let me tell you what will happen here. Let's make a bet. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you put it quite in those terms. No, no, no. But he says this this is what's going to come to pass, essentially. Right, right. And he he shows that. I mean, and the eunuch is able to decide that for himself. I mean, I think, and again, the reason I say that and, you know, don't be passive aggressive in this sort of thing is that I think all too often we equate faithfulness with this kind of, humming and hawing and not really doing anything and complaining about what's happening and, oh, isn't it so bad? And, you know, what's going to, what are we going to do? And it really becomes being faithful means being grumpy. Yeah. Put it in simple terms. Yeah. But that's not what it is. Yeah. And just stating positions (laughs) instead of just living it, you know, instead of, instead of also living it, I should say. Well, because eventually, eventually it's going to have to come down to, are you going to do this or not? Right. I mean, Daniel could be, you know, a hashtag against King's food all he wants all day on Twitter. But unless he actually lives it out, unless he actually does something about it, that ultimately means nothing. Right. And what Daniel ends up doing, I mean, it's more severe than the than the Jewish laws because right. he says, give us vegetables to eat and water to drink for 10 days. So you're... you're- you're you're going for the Daniel fast? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, no, don't don't get any ideas. We have enough we have enough books uh, written <laughs> trying to fleece you of your money, but that wouldn't be an easy fast for most of us to try to accomplish nowadays, would it? No, not at all. I mean, you're basically eating a deficient diet and drinking only water, even for ten days in itself would be difficult. Yeah, and, uh, and, and presumably not a, a huge amount of these things either. Right. So it will be hard. And, and even if you, you could get enough nutrition from that, which if you ate enough, you probably could. Oh, you certainly could. But we are so accustomed to eating a certain way and to eating rich foods, it would be very difficult just for that reason alone. So where's my, my, where's my sugar? Where's my caffeine? Right. Is the Bible against the keto diet then? Is that what you're saying, Willie? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying creation, <laughs> cre- creation certainly is. <laughs> Because <laughs> while we're commanded to eat meat now, we were not designed to eat meat originally. Right. But we are and commanded now. We are commanded now. And and things have to die. You know, it's 
I don't think everything. I don't think everything has to uh, has to be a hundred percent meat meal. Although I wish it were that way. <laughs> I mean, a nice juicy steak. I mean, you can't go wrong. But but I mean, the outcome of all of this is very telling too, because the steward does what Daniel wants. He takes away his his rich food. He gives him vegetable and waters to drink. And eventually, at the end of the ten days, the youths are all better in appearance than the king's own court, basically. Correct. And so Daniel is vindicated. Now, is this... I I don't think we should understand this in kind of like physical, like, oh, he was just on a great diet, which is what we were kind of joking about here for the past couple of minutes. I really do think what is happening here is God is giving him this as a... Do you want to say reward for his faithfulness? I don't know how do you want to put it. He's giving him the strength that he needs sure. to bear to bear witness to the truth of the God of Israel. Right. Well, I mean, it is, I mean, it is in response to what he's doing, right? If Daniel yes. had given in to the king's food, if he had if he had partaken, he would not be in such fine shape. Correct. You know, because of his faithlessness. Right. But because he has followed after God, because he has done yes. what God wants him to do. God takes care of it. Yes. At that point, our audience is now bristling. <laughs> but there are principles and promises in the scripture. Sure. Do this and you will live. Do this and your days will be long in the earth. I mean, is it, is it, I mean, we even talk about the, the reward that we're going to have in eternity, right? The, the crown which we will wear, it will, we will, it will not all be the same. And that's right. okay. You know, God does give, to each according to his his good pleasure, of course, but according to what he wants to reward. Right, yeah. In heaven, you're not going to be concerned about rank, but there is one. Because, right. I mean, Jesus even talks about first and last and those ahead of others in the kingdom. But we, but we hear it butchered all the time. No, 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 no. Everybody's the same. Why? Yeah. Well, because, I've, because gospel reductionism. That's why. Because we all believe. Yeah, well, it's not what it says, though. Right. But, and I mean, and, and what Daniel is doing, especially as we move forward in the book of Daniel, is in a sense a, a very great thing. I mean, we cannot underplay what Daniel is doing. For him to remain faithful in the face of lions, for him to remain faithful in the face of this, for the three young men to remain faithful in the face of being burned alive. I mean, these are great works which they are doing, and we should see them as great works which they have done. And they will be given according to how God please, you know, what God wants to give them. Right. Now we can imitate that though. And I think that's really the, the point that we want to draw away from this is right. that these men become examples for us to follow. Well, yeah. So, you know, they are at the end of the fasting period or the testing period, whatever we want to call it. Um, they're fatter in flesh. Okay. But it goes beyond that. So after that, the steward takes away their food and wine and gives them only vegetables and then these youths, it says, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And then jump forward a couple verses. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So he doesn't just gift them uh, physical stature, but he's giving them, in the case of Daniel, prophetic abilities. And then in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
wisdom and learning, skill and right. literature. And right. the king is impressed by this. We forget that those things are gifts of God. Well, I mean, prophecy, yeah, we understand. Prophecy and visions, yes, that would be a gift of God, but we forget that wisdom is gift as well. Right. Well, because we, we tend to think of wisdom as being something that comes purely by experience. If you just put in the the effort, you'll gain the knowledge kind of a thing, but right. that's not the biblical witness. And if I can go in the weeds for a second, Daniel has um, understanding in all visions and dreams. Right. And this is going to be like dreams of a pagan king that right. he can interpret. Do you think there's any room for that nowadays? Boy, we are going in the weeds, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, are you basically asking, does God continue to give the prophetic gifts? Are we talking about the the charismata here? Is that where you want to go? Well, kind of. But okay. I mean, here, here this, this is not a case where God gives a Christian a vision and a dream that must be interpreted. Here, Daniel is, a, is going to interpret the dreams of a non-believer. Like Joseph would do, right? Right, right. Okay. So, which so, that there, be- so that there are things to be discerned in dreams of non-believers. So a Christian like Daniel is here to do it. Right. Okay, Does, so, that, so that, let's just let's pick is, a direction here. Are we yeah, talking is, about God speaking to the unbelievers and using them for his revelation, or are we talking about the charismata? We're going kind of to talk, talk about the unbelievers first, then the charismata. Okay. As far as God using the unbelievers to carry out his vision... Could that happen today? Is that your question? Yeah, I'm asking you if if there's any reason to try to discern dreams and visions today, particularly of unbelievers. Oh, I get you. Well, that I think is a little bit more in question today, if only because the revelation of God has now been completed. There's not so much a need for it. I mean, yeah, you have Agabus in the New Testament, but even then most of the New Testament hasn't been written. But you have, um, you know, Joseph or Daniel here, they're able to interpret things that are preserved in Scripture and perhaps some things that aren't preserved in Scripture, whereby they're able to, one of their gifts is, okay, what does this dream mean? Right. So it's not 100% related to Scripture or the closing of the canon. Yeah, but at the same time, you talk about interpreting dreams, you're invariably going to run into some new age stuff in these days. I know, that's that's why I'm asking it, just for the fun of it. Just for the fun of it? I want you to tell the audience what to think. (laughs) Is it possible? Of course it's possible. I just don't think it's necessary anymore. And I guess maybe that's my point. All right, now let's talk about the charismata. I'm assuming your answer is going to be the same thing there. Yeah, more or less. I mean, because what was the purpose of the charismata? It was to bolster up the fledgling church so that, you know, the the word would be confirmed by the accompanying miracles. Right. Um, But as Paul will go on to say uh, in the reading for this coming Sunday, actually, 1 Corinthians 13, these things will come to an end, but love will go on forever. Right. So so then what do you make of uh, Peter quoting the prophet Joel in the last days? God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Well, the spirit has been poured out, right? So so you think that it's only, that that is only there for the brief period of time between the apostolic age and the closing of the canon? 
I think the the signs that go along with it are have closed, but the pouring out of the spirit is something that has gone on until the present. So we don't need these signs anymore because we have all the testimony that we need. So in what way then would prophesying be connected to the pouring out of the spirit today? You're just I'm just wanting my... to have I'm just wanting to have fun with Zelwin in the last segments all. No, that's fine. That's fine. I'm trying to get you to say that you're a prophet because you bring the word of God to the people and you're not taking the bait. <laughs> well, now that you've baited it so clearly, I mean, yeah, but that's, but when we talk about prophecy in that way, are we, you know, cause what do we mean by prophet? Of course, do we mean prophet as in foretelling, as in like Agabus, this is going to happen, you know, the famine's yeah. coming kind of a thing. Or as in, as in revelation, as in revelation. I don't think that's, I don't think that is as necessary anymore. As far as the prophecy is like, thus saith the Lord, that will go on forever. I mean, this is what God has said. This is what we are called to preach. Yes, yeah, is, that prophecy continues. This is what God is saying even. Right. I mean, well, that's what we're doing here today, right? This is what God says then and what sure. it means for us now. Right. <laughs> Anyway, so the prophetic voice is still there. All I was getting at. All right, let's get out of the weeds now. Let's go back to Daniel. <laughs> oh, man. Good stuff. So, so where were we? Well, we were we were just talking about the, well, the visions and the dreams and the the wisdom being given to the, to the young men and how they're better than everyone else because of the blessing which God has given. And I guess the, the final question we should ask with this is more or less, what does this mean for us? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we take away from this? Right. And what does this mean for our faithfulness, especially when it's very difficult to do so? Right. So what do you think? You just, you're just throwing them back at me here, aren't you? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I can pick it up. I, there is a promise. Now you don't have the, the promise that if you abstain from these foods, that you will have the same wisdom and gifts as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You do have the promise that if you remain faithful, that if um, you cling to Christ um, and remain in Him, you will receive an imperishable crown, a perishable wreath. And the call is to endure. Right. The call is to be faithful. There is no honest biblical way to get around that. And being faithful is first and foremost faith and trust in God above all things faith and trust in Christ above all things. But that true faith also will not compromise with the world. That that faith does mean that you will find yourself at odds with the wisdom of the age. And it is sometimes hard to endure. We have to consider the reproach of Egypt to be something worth leaving behind. Right. And the Lord will sustain you. You're not doing this alone. You're doing this through the help of the Lord. The Lord is the one who is sustaining you through this. The Lord himself is ministering to you. And so when you are buffeted, he is there standing you up and strengthening you. And so gird yourself up and be ready for it. Be ready to make those sacrifices. Be ready to be different. Be ready to take, you know, to stand firm on a confession that is not politically expedient. And that is at times not palatable to the world. The world does not understand. King Nebuchadnezzar does not understand Daniel. 
He marvels at what he can do. But as you're going to see with Nebuchadnezzar, he really, it takes him a while to get it. Right. If indeed he, you know, so he'd be ready to do that. Zolan? You don't need to explain it to death either. Mm-hmm. You know, stand faithful, do what is right, and whatever that costs you, be willing to pay that. You know, if right. that costs you your friends, what's worth more to you, them or God? If that costs you your job, what's worth more to you, it or God? If that even costs you, say, some of your family and, you know, not being on speaking terms with them, what's worth more to you? What do you consider to be important? If Daniel had considered all of these other things to be the most important thing of all, then he, he wouldn't be where he is now. We wouldn't have a book of Daniel. But because he stood faithful, because he was firm, even in the face of tremendous pressure, he now stands as an example for us in these difficult days of what it means to be faithful. So as we move forward through the book of Daniel, I think you'll see that time and time again, that we need to stand firm and do what is right, whatever it may cost us. Very good. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi. God love you, and God bless. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Daniel 1 verses 19 and 20.